several months ago, Brother David Sane from the West Fayetteville congregation called me and said, Tony, we want you to speak on our summer series. And I said, great, I'd love to do that. He said, well, you may not want to when I give you your topic. He said, the theme will be when times are hard, and your specific topic will be solving parent-child conflict. And uh, I remember responding to Brother David by saying, you wouldn't give me a hard topic, would you? And after I hung up the phone, I immediately thought in my mind, I don't have the wisdom of Solomon. How in the world would I be able to address that? But then I was reminded by reading that we do have the wisdom of Solomon. It's found in the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And we have the wisdom of our Lord found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we have the wisdom that was revealed by the Holy Spirit to the other biblical writers. And so these are topics that if we are biblical and we are practical, we will address them. You know, our Lord, when he came to this earth, said in Matthew chapter 10, Think not that I came to bring peace on the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. And then if you drop down to verse 21 of Matthew 10, he says, Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father a child, and children will rise up against parents, causing them to be put to death. I have to recognize that there is a friction within the family many times that relates to right versus wrong. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is talking about mixed marriages, that is, those who are Christians married to non-Christians. And he contemplates a situation where one who is a Christian might have a mate who will not stay with them but departs because they are a Christian. Dealing with friction in the family Solving parent-child conflict requires that you and I go to the Bible, study it carefully, and draw some practical conclusions from it. I have three points that I want to cover in our lesson this morning. Number one will be instances of parent-child conflict. And what we will do as time permits, and I may have to shorten this some, but just simply go through the text of the Bible and look at some instances. I think there's a lot to be learned just from looking at those. Number two, I want us to look at some indications of problems. Are there signs that you and I might be able to observe in our family's life that show us there's a problem that is going to arise. And then finally, some instructions from some passages, particular passages from God's Word. Let's begin, first of all, at looking at some instances. And I'd like for you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 16. We're going to begin with the first instance of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac. Yes, all those characters are involved. If you'll remember last week when we studied about Abraham, God made a promise to Abraham 
that one of his own body would be his heir. Abraham had asked the question, will Eliezer, my servant, be my heir? And God said, no, one from your own body. Some ten years after God had made that promise, Abraham and Sarah were concerned that God was not fulfilling it well enough. And so as you begin Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 6, the proposal that Sarah comes up with is to offer her handmaid, Hagar, as a surrogate to have a child for Abraham. But as you continue reading in that passage, immediately after Hagar conceives, you have Sarah being despised in Hagar's eyes. And in verse 5, you find Sarah looking at Abraham and saying, My wrong be upon you. It's your fault. You shouldn't have let me done this. Talk about friction in the family. Of course, as you continue on and read, as you get to chapter 21, you will realize that what happens is that Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. And years later, then Sarah does give birth to Isaac. And now Ishmael is mocking Isaac. And Sarah says, that woman's not going to stay with her, here with her child. You have to cast her out. And in chapter 21 and in verse um, 11, it says, The matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of the son. I want you to imagine, here you are, you've got a child, and your wife is saying, The one who proposed this whole situation, we've got to get rid of this woman, we've got to get rid of this child. You go on and read verses 14 through 16, and you see the sadness in the heart of Hagar, and you see the suffering of Ishmael. If there ever was conflict in a family, it was here because people were not patient enough to follow God's plan, but they decided wanted to create their own plan. I'm just going to touch on these, so I want you to continue to go on with me. Let's go to chapter 25 now. Genesis chapter 25. We're going to study about Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau. And if you get to chapter 25, you can drop down to verse 27, and you're reading about the growth of Jacob and Esau. So the boys grew, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Rebekah loved Jacob. And what results from that is favoritism. And you can see illustrated in the lives of these young boys as they're growing up that you have Esau who ends up selling his birthright to Jacob. And when it comes time, not only for the birthright, but the blessing to be conferred, Rebekah helps Jacob to deceive Isaac and receive the blessing also. What results from that is a conflict between parent and child and even conflict between siblings to the point where in chapter 27 and verse 41, 
Esau has made up in his mind, as soon as my father dies, I'm going to kill my brother. Conflict, friction in the family because of this favoritism. Keep going with me now to Genesis chapter 29, and we'll drop down to about verse 30. And then we're going to look at Jacob, and then we're going to look at Leah and Rachel, and then Jacob's sons. If you'll remember, because he was running from his brother Esau, Jacob goes to Padan Aram, back to Laban. There he cast his eyes upon a beautiful young lady. Her name was Rachel. And he wanted to marry Rachel and worked for her for seven years. However, when it came time for her to be given his wife, Laban did a presto change quick switch, and gives Leah to him as the wife. The deceiver was deceived. And so what happens is, because of that, he makes an agreement for Rachel to also be his wife and works another seven years for her. And thus begins a competition between these two sisters. Leah knew she was not loved. Rachel was unable to have children. And God opened Leah's womb and she begat five sons for Jacob. Rachel was disturbed and she learned something from grandmother. She learned, well, I can get my handmaid to have a child. And so you began to have Bilhah and Zilpah being given to Jacob to start competing again and having children. And finally, Rachel herself conceives a child and gives birth to Joseph. I can't tell you how difficult this was because of the favoritism that they had learned from Mama and Daddy and the kind of the ways they treated their children. On their way back to see Esau, they have the family lined up, and here's the way Jacob lined up his family. The two handmaid and their children are in the front because he's afraid there's going to be bloodshed. Behind the two handmaids and their children is Leah and her children. And then at the very back, protected the most, is Rachel and Joseph. That shows the love, the favoritism. It doesn't take a person long to realize that that favoritism began to show itself. And if you go with me to Genesis chapter 37, in verses 2 through 4, you'll observe that this favoritism created conflict within the family to the point that the love of Jacob toward Joseph made the other brothers jealous to the point where in verse 4 it says that they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Conflict in a family, friction in a family. Now if you'll turn with me to the book of Leviticus. I know I'm going quickly, but I have to. There's so much to be covered here. You come and you'll realize that Aaron has two sons. He has more, but these are the two that are important. And Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, offer strange fire to the Lord. And the anger of the Lord comes out of heaven toward Nadab and Abihu and consumes them. And in verse 3, you'll read, 
This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. Aaron was then instructed to hold his peace. Here's a father who definitely loved his sons, but he was not allowed to grieve, at least publicly. I dare say that there's some of you here this morning who have children who are doing things that are not right, and you're grieving quietly about it. You feel you can't speak because you don't want someone to feel that you somehow justify your children in their behavior. And so you grieve quietly about it. Continue with me now to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now we want to talk about Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. Eli is the high priest. His two sons are Hophni and Phinehas. The text will tell us in verses 12, then verse 17, then verses 22 through 25, that these young men were not very good young men. They didn't respect the job they had in serving God. They took the sacrifices which had been presented to them and treated them with no respect or no holiness whatsoever. You go on to read that they committed immoral acts with women at the very gate of the Lord's house. And by the time you get to the looking at all of this, you get to verse 23. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the people of the Lord transgress. You have a father who looks at his sons and says, Your boys, you're not acting right. You're not living right. But we go on to read in chapter 3 and verse 13, God's condemnation of Eli. For the iniquity he which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. You see a conflict between a father and his sons because they're not living right. And he has not provided either in the past or evidently in the presence the restraining that was necessary. You can't do this anymore. Very quickly, move with me now to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. We all know what David did, and I just want to talk about David and Absalom for just a moment. David's sin with Bathsheba was very grievous, but it was something done in private. It was hidden from most people's eyes. David evidently thought he'd gotten away with it until Nathan the prophet had rebuked him. But what you read in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 11 and 12 is God telling him, what you did, you did in secret, but one of your own house will do this to you openly in the sight of the sun. 
Little did David realize that his son Absalom would do that. Let me give you just a real brief snapshot of what goes on right after this. You go on into chapter 13, and you're introduced to David's son Amnon, and you're introduced to David's daughter Tamar. Absalom and Tamar are full sisters. Amnon's a half-brother. Amnon looks at his sister and is lusting after her, and he goes in and he rapes her. That makes Absalom so angry, he plots his brother Amnon's death and has him killed. After that, because of the conflict, he flees away to another country for three years. When he's brought back, it's still another two years, chapter 14, before he's able to see his father David's face. You talk about conflict in a family. How would you like to have rape and murder among your children? What's so sad is it goes on to tell us about Absalom as he steals the hearts of the children of Israel. He eventually overthrows David, runs him out of Jerusalem, and there at the council of Ahithophel in 2 Samuel chapter 13, or chapter 16, excuse me, he goes into David's concubines right there in the sight of the sun. Oh, David then grieves so much. Absalom dies, and David cries out, Absalom, Absalom, oh, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? You see, conflict, friction in a family. I've got to move quickly to the New Testament. I'm just going to give you two real quick instances. When you go to Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32, Jesus gives the parable of two sons. To summarize it very quickly, a father says to his son, Son, go work today in my vineyard. The first one said, Father, I go, but he didn't go. The second one says, Father, I will not go, but he does go. Jesus asked the question, which of those did his father's will? And you have to understand when you're reading this, that Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and the people of the world. Sometimes children will say, because they're, they're wanting the praise, will say, I'll do this, I'll do this. But then they don't. They're all talk but no action. Others sometimes will be a little bit smart aleck. In an ideal world, every child would say, yes, I'll do it and then do it. But we don't live in an ideal world and we don't have ideal families. And that produces conflict. In chapter 15 of Luke, you have another instance, and that of the prodigal son. It's really not just about the prodigal son. It's about the two sons. Both of them were disappointments to their father. The first one was wasteful and worldly. He took what had been given to him. He wasted it. He lived it in a worldly life. But the second one was greedy and selfish. He didn't want his brother to have anything that he might have. He could not even go in and rejoice that his brother was alive. Conflict between a parent and a child. One who may go one direction, one who goes another direction, but both are going in the wrong direction. You see, if I just took just those instances, I think there's a lot to learn. 
But let me move second of all to indication of a problem. When families come sometimes and say, Brother Tony, we need to sit and talk with you. We're having some problems in our family. And quite frequently, they will look and they'll say, the signs of the problem were there, but we just didn't see it. And most often, I'll point out to them, we all want to believe the best of our children, just like we want to believe the best of ourselves. We're blinded to our own faults. We're many times blinded to our own children's faults. But we have to recognize there's some clear signs that there's going to be problems in a family. And let me point to you some of these. When your children begin to verbalize to you that they do not feel they're being treated fairly and that there are, are favorites within the family, I can assure you problems will arise. In James chapter 1 or 2, verse 1, verse 9, he's talking about those of you who would hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. He drops down to verse 9 and he says, But if you show favoritism or you show partiality, you commit sin. What? You commit sin. Folks, we can look back and we can see in the lives of Abraham with his children. You can see in the lives of Isaac with his children. You can see in the lives of Jacob with his children what favoritism did and it will do to your family as well. The second indicator of problems is a lack of respect for authority. Whether it's a lack of respect for God, for the government, or for the parents within the home, those things tend to go together. In Exodus chapter 21 and verse 7, And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Deuteronomy 37 or 27 16. And all the people here, he says, Cursed shall be one who treats his father and mother with contempt. And all the people shall say, Amen. A third sign, indicator, is bad associates. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33. Evil companions corrupt good morals. Proverbs 13 and verse 20, If you walk with wise men, you'll be wise, but the companions of fools will be destroyed. If your children are choosing to associate with bad people, there is a real big indicator that there's going to be problems. If you're having conflict in the home, I think there's some questions you need to ask. Some indicators. What is the source of the conflict? What is really caused? Not what's the symptoms. What's the source? What's the cause? Sometimes that requires some serious investigation. Number two, is this conflict a matter of right versus wrong? Is it a matter of opinion whether you like blue or red? Or is it a matter of... Sin or not sin? Number three, you ought to ask yourself, have I contributed to this conflict? A harsh word stirs up anger. 
Am I a part of the problem? Am I creating the conflict? Number four, what can I do to stop the conflict? Proverbs chapter 28, verses 20 and 21. Where there's no wood, the fire goes out. Where there's no tailbearer, strife ceases. As charcoals to a burning fire and as wood to a burning coals, as wood is to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. What can I do to try to remove the fuel from the fire and lessen the conflict? Let me offer you very quickly now some instructions from some particular passages in God's Word. I'm going to try to break these down to parents and children. Number one, for parents, watch your own behavior. If you learn anything from the instances of the Old Testament is, sometimes the suffering and the conflict was brought on by the behavior of the parents. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18, in verses 1 and 2, God asked the question, what about this proverb where you say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? Where you say, look at what the parents have done and how it affects the children. The book of Lamentations says, our fathers sin and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. Sometimes the conflict in the family is caused by the behavior of mama and daddy. Number two, don't enable bad behavior. You've heard of enablers. I want you to listen to Proverbs chapter 19, verses 18 and 19. Chasten your son while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. For a great man, or a man of great wrath, will suffer punishment. For if you rescue him, you will have to do it again. A man of great wrath, if you rescue him, you'll have to do it again. Let me make this plain to you, if you will. Parents, if you remove all of the consequences of your children's bad behavior, you're going to have to do it over and over again. If every time your child gets in trouble at school, you go to school and you point your finger at the teacher and says, It's your fault. Better get ready because you're going to have to do that over and over again. If every time your child gets in trouble with the law, you go and you bail them out and you pay their fines and you take care of them, get ready because you're going to have to do it over and over again. If every time your child gets in trouble financially, you go and you rescue them, you better get ready. You're going to have to do that over and over and over again. Don't be an enabler as a parent. That only is going to perpetuate the conflict. You need to rebuke and restrain. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. And just as the father of the son in whom he delights. Proverbs 13, 24. He who spares a rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, 
but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Proverbs 29, verse 15, The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. I know I'm running out of time. There's a passage that I almost pulled out and said, I'm just going to use this. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 11, Paul writes, As you know, we exhorted, comforted, and charged each one of you as a father does his children. Charged, comforted, and encouraged. You see, those of us who are parents can do things in such a way that we destroy the children's ability to want to do right passage that was read just for our lesson said fathers provoke not your children to wrath Colossians 3 and verse 21 says and fathers do not provoke your children lest they be discouraged very quickly children I want the children to listen if you're old enough to understand I'm speaking to you then you need to listen if you're 10 years old or 40 years old, you need to realize your parents aren't perfect. Even in a world where our parents try the very best they can do, they're still not going to be perfect. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, Our fathers disciplined us as it pleased them. And then he goes on, he says, as it seemed best to them. They're trying the best they can. But do you know what happens sometimes? Parents make foolish demands. Saul told the army that was fighting for him, don't you eat a thing until the sun goes down. Jonathan is coming along and the spoils is left. He puts his end of his spear down into the honey, takes some of it, he gets a burst of energy and he says, my father is foolish. Sometimes parents make foolish demands. But let me tell you something, children. You can have bad parents and turn out good. I could give you several instances of that, but I'll just give you one. Josiah in Second Chronicles chapter 33 his father was Ammon, who was such a bad scoundrel within two years, they killed him. His grandfather was Manasseh, who reigned for 55 years, and he was just as bad as you could get. But Josiah turned out to be one of the best kings of Israel. Good parents will sometimes make demands that you may not understand. But you need to stand and show respect for them. Because what they are trying to do is to direct you in the right way. You need to realize you've got a name. Your parents have built a reputation and they're passing that along to you. I can remember vividly my father looking at me and saying, Boy, don't you ever embarrass our name. Don't you ever do anything that brings shame on us because you wear our name. 
Proverbs 22, 1 says, A good name is rather be chosen than great riches and love and favor rather than silver and gold. I still have about another three or four pages, but I'm not going to continue on. Let me finish with this. Parents and children have had and will have conflict. We can address it and we can avoid it, but it will still happen. The best thing that you and I can do is, once we realize that there's conflict there, is to take care of it. But do you know what happens sometimes? Is we have a parent-child conflict between us and God. And the truth is, is that God is the perfect parent. He doesn't make mistakes. And if there's anyone who needs to fix it, it's us. It's us who need to come to God and say, I'm sorry, I've not been a good son, I've not been a good daughter. I know that I have done things that have dishonored your name. And I know that I've done things that you are greatly disappointed in. If I could be able to persuade you this morning, if that is who you are, you need to come back and ask for God's forgiveness. But some of you are not God's children yet. You can be born into God's family by being baptized for the remission of your sins. If you need to respond, will you come as we stand in sing?